electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Mike Santoli. Kramer's out today. Futures close to their lows of the morning as the bond yield backup continues. In the wake of this blowout eco data, retail sales hottest since June, up 5.3, and wholesale inflation up 1.3. Our roadmap begins with this power grid crisis as freezing weather leaves millions in Texas and the Midwest without power. And, well, let's talk about shares of QuantumScape. They're up despite a loss in its first quarter, of course, since going public. It's not like the company's going to be making any money anytime soon, but the CEO will join us in a few minutes. And finally, inside Buffett's portfolio, trimming his Apple stake and adding new positions in Verizon and Chevron. We'll break all those changes down this hour, Carl. Guys, uh, we'll get to the eco data in a moment, Mike, but it kind of ties into the ongoing crisis in Texas. Uh, nearly 26 dead, a couple, maybe three million still out of power and another possible second storm on the way. Mike, there's more discussion this morning about not just the freeze in the Midwest and Texas impacting economic activity, but couple that with the ongoing semi-shortage. And maybe the theory here is that despite the good eco data today, it gets a little more hiccupy in the coming months. Yeah. And even to add to all of that, you know, a slowdown in, uh, in vaccine uh, administration, right? So a lot of those things definitely create some friction in this whole story that we were on a very clear path to a fast acceleration into the spring. It probably doesn't knock anything permanently or off course, but it, it changes a little bit of the pacing uh, of things. I think that's fair to say, as well as, you know, adding a little bit of an accelerant to this move we've seen in oil prices uh, now, you know, up above $60 in WTI. So it does, you know, I think it creates a little bit of a complicating factor to a lot of what we're expecting, although uh, mostly people are sticking with this idea and pricing the markets uh, for the premise that we do get through it and, uh, and you know, it's going to be some, you know, massive asterisk and a lot of, uh, a lot of pain obviously going on down there. David. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll watch it. Uh, and, David, uh, meanwhile, corporates continue to be pretty rock solid. you got double Bs uh, below three. Uh, that leads Nat Alliance this morning to suggest that maybe that provides some uh, signs of stabilization on the 10-year, maybe below, they say, 136. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, where we hit 133, somewhere in there. Uh, quite a move in yield in, in a very short amount of time. And, you know, that you're starting to hear that more often, at least in the conversations that I'm having, the idea of, uh, are yields um, done moving lower in any way? Are they going to continue to move higher? Are we going to see the, uh, the curve itself steepen to some extent? Um, you know, you've got, as you pointed out, Carl, some fairly strong numbers in terms of parts of the economy right now, despite what's going on uh, in, in Texas and some of those other states. You've also um, got the prospect of $1.9 trillion coming into this economy pretty soon. Uh, and the checks that go along with that. And you referenced Goldman Sachs' work in terms of how much of that will be saved and how much will be spent and how much already has been saved and how much will find its way potentially into places like 
Robinhood accounts in the stock market. But, Mike, I don't know if you hear it more often, but I certainly do at least that question of could there really one day actually be a return of inflation? Are we already pouring fuel on a a pretty hot fire to begin with, uh, given people are getting back to sort of life? A lot of the country already is, but that return to normalcy, the spending that will come along with that, and then $1.9 trillion on top of that. Yeah. And by the way, potentially an infrastructure bill following on that. You know, the idea that there won't ever be inflation, I guess a lot of us kind of these last 20 years, whatever it's been, you've grown up with that idea. But the yields are starting to show a little something different, not to mention, of course, that desire from anybody anywhere to buy anything that's got some sort of an interesting yield on it. Yeah, there's no doubt. I think everybody expects, I mean, just the math was going to get you a little bit of a burst in uh, in inflation, at least on a reported basis, over the next few months, because we did, we are going to anniversary the crash. So everyone's been bracing for this sort of statistical, cosmetic uh, inflation, uh, you know, outburst, so to speak. But people were going to say, you have to look through it. Uh, it's really not going to be something that's a new trend. And the Fed, of course, is trying to engineer inflation and has been trying to prepare investors for the idea that they are going to be tolerant of significantly higher inflation for some time to come to essentially counterbalance all this time we've spent under their target of 2%. Right. So that's been the, the, the playing field. I think right now you are have to wonder about, you know, the retail sales number in January. Everything is, is, is running a little bit better than expected on the consumer spending side. And then, you know, even on the uh, inflation side so far. And you look at the bond market right now, all it's doing is kind of normalizing rates. You know, if we were at a percent and a half yeah, a year but, ago. But, Mike, what if you had a real curve? What if you actually got back to one that you and I may well, we remember? We do have a real curve we because were... we were at a percent and a half on the 10-year a year yeah. ago, and the Fed funds rate was at a percent and a half. Right. So, you know, it, it's starting to become a real curve. What's interesting to me is if you look at things like the five-year, you know, that was at, you know, 35 basis points six weeks ago. Now it's pushing 60, right? Not a big move, not high rates, but it's showing you that the market is unable to ignore the idea that the Fed may have to respond. By the way, what, is this, what does the retail sales number do to that $1.9 trillion everybody's expecting? Are people going to say, hey, we're at 6.3% unemployment, everything's moving fast, we're reopening, do we need that much? It, well, it doesn't seem to be stopping it. I mean, no, that, it that yeah. seems to be moving along. <laughs> but, you know, my question to you then would be, all right, if we get back to rates that perhaps we are accustomed yeah. to, but perhaps some other uh, market uh, players are not. What does it mean for growth stocks? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking where- at this Goldman Sachs note on Palantir this morning, right? They upgraded to a buy because it's growing at about 30% plus, And they said that deserves a 44 multiple on calendar year 21 sales. Yeah, right. So what happens in a an environment where we get 2% of the 10-year to, to growth stocks like that or higher and a real curve? Right. No, well, what's interesting about that is the pre-earnings, or I guess Palantir technically not pre-earnings, but if you're basing it on on top line, I don't even think it matters as much for that. I'm looking more at Apple, which has bond-like characteristics in terms of its cash flow stream, in terms of the way it, it you know, distributes cash to shareholders. That's where the big market cap weights are uh, from growth stocks in the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. And that, to me, is, is much more sensitive to changes in yields and inflation expectations. And that's probably where you get the valuation compressing, Carl. Yeah, that's interesting. Apple uh, trading exactly where it was on, I think, September 1st. 
hasn't done a whole lot. And speaking of big cap tech going sideways, uh, today City ups their target on Amazon, guys. Not that it acts uh, as a bond proxy the way Apple does, but their general point, Mike, is that Amazon shares tend to go flat for a while and then surge. And as a result, they go to, I think, 3750 from 3600 Yeah, completely. I mean, that has been the pattern. I mean, it's been everyone's been kind of sitting vigil on this and saying, wow, it's just kind of going sideways. It's, it's really getting wound pretty tight. It's probably going to run again. I think everyone's presumption is the run is higher as opposed to lower. Uh, and, but again, this is one of those companies. Yeah, sure. People value it on free cash flow yield and things like that. But to me, it's a little more of a of a top line. You know, if we're going to run the economy hot, Amazon's going to be there to catch, you know, a, a fair amount of it. Uh, so I think it's a little bit of a different equation than those kind of pure uh, long term cash flow generating stories where it was really mostly about pricing those things against uh, corporate bond yields, which are now, you know, at least modestly rising. Yeah. Well, it also just could, I mean, you know, you got to look every, every morning at what Kathy Wood bought at ARC. Yeah. So, and they bought about eight, they bought 18, 1,875 shares of Amazon. Uh, so they got that going for them. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about Buffett, but I mean, I guess this list is more important than what Buffett's 13 F's look like lately uh, in terms of what they're buying at ARC Investments. It has been. It's been self-reinforcing. It's, um, it, it's basically been uh, the game on, on Wall Street for a while. However, conspicuously, look at how Tesla trades. Yeah. And look at how Tesla has traded since yeah. the Bitcoin announcement. And since everyone has gotten a little more excited about a broader set of, of uh, EV prospects in terms of manufacturers, who knows what else is going on in the psychology or if it just has to digest this move. Stock was at 400 bucks before it was announced it was going in the S&P 500 in November, I think. I mean, you know, it, it, it doesn't owe anybody anything at this point, but you can't ignore the fact that it actually has been un, unable to sustain itself above that $800 billion market cap that it reached at the point. Yeah, Carl dropping uh, Elon Musk to number two and that uh, yep. richest man in the world uh, thing that we follow, I guess, Bezos <laughs> back in the number one position, speaking of Amazon. Uh, yeah, and speaking of uh, putting Bitcoin on the balance sheet, this new Gartner survey of CFOs uh, finds that about 5% of uh, CFOs who are surveyed say they'll put uh, Bitcoin on the, uh, on the docket as a corporate asset. Uh, 84% say they don't plan to ever but, of course, that those numbers are subject to change. Uh, David, you mentioned Buffett. I think we should probably skip ahead to it because sure. a lot of discussion about uh, what it means, um, trimming uh, Wells, uh, trimming uh, Apple. Uh, but then does Verizon stake uh, act as a new proxy on the phone market, uh, really having uh, no movement on the Apple stake so far? Yeah, $8.6 billion worth of Verizon. But to your point, and Mike made this point yesterday, I mean, when you look at Berkshire, $117 billion of Apple stock. I mean, it, it dwarfs everything else in the portfolio and then some. I think one of the key questions for Berkshire, of course, has been they haven't bought anything uh, in the sense of a company, an operating company, the way that we have become accustomed to them doing so. Not sure what that says about the M&A environment or at least the view that uh, Warren Buffett has of it uh, in terms of opportunities that are coming his way. They've been buying back their stock, as we know. And to your point, Carl, they did take this position in Chevron about $4 billion. You know, there had been some thought maybe it would have been Exxon, which, by the way, over the last few months has performed a lot better than Chevron and is now once again ahead of it in terms of market cap. Um, we know that uh, Exxon has been dealing with issues of its own in terms of some activist investors, uh, potential addition to the board. They've already made one change and some commitments they've made as well to um, uh, to 
moving towards, you know, not carbon neutrality necessarily, but a number of different things, and more specifically as well, towards spending less when it comes to CapEx or just operational uh, expenses. But there's a look, uh, well, there's a look at some of the other names. And Wells Fargo, Mike, had been one of the biggest uh, at, uh, at Berkshire for some time, but that's certainly no longer the case. I would point out when it comes to energy, I always go back to his um, that Occidental deal. Yeah. It was uh, April of 2019, April 30th, when he, uh, when he bought $10 billion worth of, it was a convert. Uh, he's never going to see the convert price, but he got 8%. A dividend. The convert, by the way, was sixty-two fifty a share on Occidental. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because Chevron and Verizon. I mean, you could argue are back to a more core contrarian value type orientation, but also very much risk-averse choices, right? I mean, if you look at the position as as blended, it's got a five percent blended dividend yield in terms of the amounts he bought. So he's getting six hundred million dollars. <laughs> a year uh, at the current dividend rates to own these things. Um, it, it, that sort of buffers your downside. Also, you look at Verizon, it sort of fits in with the kind of infrastructure slash utility thing. He's got railroads, he's got utilities, he's got energy, you know, pipelines. So it just seems as if broad proxy on massive parts of the economy seems like it fits. And uh, so it's not necessarily something where it says there's a new story here, uh, obviously 5G at Verizon, but it's not as if it seems like there's a, a real high concept thesis. It's much more about, you know, market was giving me the opportunity to own these things. I can, uh, I can nurse the yield right. uh, for what it's worth. Right. Guys, we got industrial production coming up in a moment. Also, the CEO of QuantumScape as Squawk on the Street continues. Don't go anywhere. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Rick Santelli here. We're going to have more live breaking news. Of course, we're expecting our January read on capacity utilization, industrial production, and it is hitting the wires up nine-tenths of one percent for January industrial production, over double the expected up four-tenths. It follows, at least up to this point, an unrevised 1.6. So you can see we're definitely not moving dramatically higher in this series, and if we consider that the high watermark is the all-time high, that was in June at 6.24, we have mostly been deteriorating, but we are coming back 
a little bit when you consider we did have a negative number in September. On the utilization rates, 75.6. Now, this is definitely a beat no matter how you slice it. Consider that we were in the 76 range in January and February before COVID. So this number really pops us out. It follows 74.5, and it is the best level since February. So we are making some progress. Back to you, David. Okay, thank you, Rick. Shares of QuantumScape, they're up in the pre-market despite posting a loss in its first results since going public. Phil LeBeau joins us now. He's got the company's CEO in a CNBC exclusive. Phil. David, let's bring in Jagdeep Singh, who is the CEO of QuantumScape. Jagdeep, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, you report a loss yesterday, but that's not really not what the market is focused on. They're focused on the two important developments that you announced yesterday, including the development of prototypes for multi-layer solid-state battery cells. Put, put this into perspective for investors, how important it is that this development goes forward with these multi-layer cells. Yeah. Hey, morning, Phil. This is a good question. So first of all, I want to say that there's a lot of, a lot more work to be done. But having said that, uh, this is an incredibly important announcement. So in December, we announced results from our single-layer cells. So the single-layer cells, of course, have all the chemistry that goes into this batteries from the cathode, the anode, the solid-state separator itself. And the results that we showed there, you might recall, were, were pretty remarkable. They've never before been seen at that level of, of cycle life, of current density, or power, of, of um, you know, fast charge. Um, you know, with temperature and so on. Uh, and then the question became, can we take those single-layer cells and put them into multi-layer stacks in order to, to build the kind of cells that we will need to ship to our automotive uh, EV companies? And what yesterday's announcement uh, uh, addresses is specifically that uh, we can, in fact, take uh, these uh, single-layer cells and stack them up. So we showed data from four-layer cells. And, and the exciting part of that was, was that the data from the four-layer cells was essentially uh, the same as the data from the single-layer cells. In terms of capacity retention, cycle life, and so on, uh, we showed 800 cycles uh, at uh, 1C and CO3 rates of fast, relatively one-hour charges and three-hour charges uh, at 30 degrees Celsius. So that was confirmation that, in fact, you can take these single-layer cells, stack them up, and do exactly what we're hoping to do uh, over time this year, we're going to end up stacking you know, more and more layers, trying to target 8 to 10 layers by year end. Uh, but that's why this is such a, such a big announcement for us. The other announcement, uh, Jagdeep, was that you guys are uh, working on building a uh, pre-pilot line in San Jose, essentially where you're going to be start building out uh, these battery cells. Now, this is not a final production facility, uh, but this, along with the fact that you're expecting to have at least $900 million in liquidity at the end of this year, does that get you through to the beginning of production? Absolutely. So we've said before that the, the cash balance we have, so, you know, we, we ended um, uh, last year with uh, almost, actually about a billion dollars in the bank. And we'll end this year, as you pointed out, with north of, uh, of $900 million in the bank. So uh, the, the liquidity position is very strong. Uh, the, the, this facility you're referring to, QS0, which is, our, which is going to be a, a sort of a pre-pilot production line, uh, it's, it's really important. It's also related to the multi-layer announcement we made yesterday. So the fact that we've seen this kind of progress is what gives us confidence to go ahead and, and build this pre-pilot line. Uh, we will have sales rolling off this line in 2023, uh, which means we'll be able to provide those sales to automotive OEMs uh, to put into into test vehicles, so that's uh, that's a pretty big uh, uh, milestone and a pretty big target as well. Uh, and, and to answer your question, absolutely, the, the current cash balance we have in the bank uh, as we end the year uh, will in fact be sufficient to get us into first production, not just this uh, this pre-pilot line, but actual first production with uh, with Volkswagen. 
Jack Davis, David, are you giving yourself enough time here? I mean, you've got you just laid out some of your goals in terms of right prototype battery cells to your customers in 2022. Uh, layer by layer by layer, you're at four. You want to go to what eight to ten? You know, science is science. Sometimes there are setbacks. Uh, if there are, are you still giving yourself enough time to meet your goals? Yeah, David. So you know, it's a good question. Uh, so one of the things I think that one of the reasons why we we went public last year was precisely because we thought most of the science, most of the chemistry risk, is behind us. So having by showing single layer cells, which which basically encapsulates all of the chemistry, uh, we feel like the chemistry risk is in fact uh, largely behind us. Uh, and confirmation of that was when we stacked these four layer cells up. There is no new chemistry involved, so they work. You're absolutely right. We need to keep stacking more and more layers up. We need to ramp up production. But those are things that we feel are execution-related tasks. And I don't want to diminish the risks or the scope of the task ahead. There's a lot of work to be done here. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, um, you know, we feel we have a schedule that, um, that that is, in fact, achievable. We've got you know the, the cash balance. We've got the technology validation. We've got the customer support that we need to pull it off. Uh, and, and we're going to do our best to make it happen. You're absolutely right. We, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. We can't guarantee that everything is going to be uh, flawless. But I think that the team has enough uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, a track record uh, to to um, uh, give us um, uh, a level of confidence that the goals that we have are, are in fact, achievable. Jack Deep, Phil here once again. A final question for you. You mentioned on the conference call last night with analysts that you have been in touch with the EV tall manufacturers, those companies building these vertical takeoff and landing uh, urban air uh, aircraft that are going to be developed theoretically over the next 10 years. Realistically, how, how quickly do you see that market taking off? No, it's a good question. I mean, I think the, the question had to do with, you know, is that an important market for, for these kinds of batteries? And the answer I gave was, was yeah. You know, uh, uh, that market is very sensitive to gravimetric energy density, right? You want as much energy as you can and as light a battery as you, as you can. Uh, but, but you, you know, you're absolutely right. And one of your anchors yesterday made the comment that this is like building a hope, building hope upon hope. So, I mean, that, that the point we're making is we're not distracting ourselves from our primary focus, which is the EV market, which is clearly massive. It's real. It's here today. Uh, we have one of the world's largest car companies, you know, committed to this technology. So the last thing we want to do is take our eye off that ball. But the main point I'm making, I was making yesterday was that, uh, was that there are clearly other markets that um, also need the same benefits that we're providing in these batteries. So, you know, uh, more energy density, I mean, more energy per unit weight, um, you know, faster charge times, uh, you know, better life performance, increased safety, uh, and so on. So, uh, you know, beyond just the EV space, over time, we fully expect to uh, address the, uh, the stationary storage for the grid market, consumer electronics, and even EV tolls. Jack Deep Singh, CEO of QuantumScape. Joining us exclusively this morning on Squawk, Street, Squawk on the Street, excuse me. Thank you, Jack Deep, for joining us. Uh, Carl, Thanks, the Bill. interesting thing as you look at the market developing is QuantumScape is up here. But let's be clear, as David pointed out, it's a long ways before these guys come to market uh, and begin production on these uh, solid-state battery cells. Phil, thanks. Great stuff. Uh, our Phil bill this morning uh, with QuantumScape. Got oil back below 60, 10-year back below 130, uh, and futures still in the red. We're back in a moment. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. We talked about uh, sort of the bullish arguments that continue to support stocks, Mike. You know, one of them we didn't really mention in the A block was the ongoing improvement in vaccine supply and distribution. Uh, the president did talk about it last night. And even though uh, Fauci yesterday had to push back a bit this period, which he once called open season, where you could just walk in and get a vaccine at will. He thought it might be April. Now he's thinking May. But the president did make clear um, just about everybody who needs one looks like we'll probably have one in the month of August, he said. Yeah, so it's a, roughly speaking within the six-month window that you know the market maybe tries to uh, to base its uh, its current positioning on. It does make sense. I mean, I think even if it's not you know substantially. Uh, more penetrated before that, it might come as a slight disappointment. But it also, it also doesn't seem to matter that much. People are spending uh, as it is right now, as they have uh, money on hand. Call. Uh, man, looking at uh, retail sales, some of the internals, that's absolutely right, Mike. Uh, there's the opening bell. I look at the S&P 500 uh, and the, uh, as Brett fills in in the NASDAQ as well. David, speaking uh, to Mike's point, uh, you, know, you look at uh, some of the sectors that, that did so well in the month, uh, furniture uh, up 12, electronics up almost 15, e-commerce or non-store up 11. Uh, Capital Economics says it's a sign that the $900 billion in stimulus we got is working as at least the policymakers wanted. You know, I really do think we're going to spend a good deal of time contemplating what the effect of potentially $1.9 trillion coming into this economy will mean, uh, and particularly checks going, obviously, to, to any number of people, uh, many of whom need it. Uh, I, I, you know, you don't want to uh, say that that's not the case. But, Mike, there is also this narrative. Larry Summers, for example, former Treasury Secretary, has been talking it up and many people have been rebutting him, but saying that this is going to potentially overheat the economy. Right. And, you know, this debate, I mean, should it be more targeted? Should you means test it a little bit more? I mean, a lot of the uh, the, the proposed fiscal support is, you know, extended and, and enhanced unemployment benefits, which, of course, as the economy gets better and people get jobs, it, it, it goes down. So this is a, a placeholder number that we're working with, $1.9 I think this is still going to be a debate because what you're seeing right now is the markets are implying and the data is showing that we're pulling forward that moment where, you know, economists, strategists, policymakers have to ask, you know, is the economy farther along than we thought it was going to be? What does that mean for the needed policy mix? So we're getting the Fed minutes today. We pretty much know what they were about, you know, in the, in the last meeting in terms of the conversation. And their emphasis has been on reiterating and trying to accentuate that their, their stance, which is we're not doing anything until this lasts for a long time, until the labor market's very tight. We think the labor market can get tighter than it was at the peak without really causing worrisome inflation. So you wonder if the market has to uh, essentially call uh, the, the, uh, the Fed on that, on that notion before we uh, you know, get, to the, get to that point. Uh, and I would just say quickly, right now it looks like a lot of stuff is dealing with overbought conditions. The S&P a little bit. Uh, yields have actually backed up on this really good uh, hot retail sales number. So maybe just, you know, we've already kind of extended these trends uh, to a certain degree uh, to this point, Carl, and maybe there's not a lot of juice in the, in the moment left for them. Yeah, all sectors are red for the morning, at least at the open here. Uh, utilities and energy, though, eking out a small gain. Uh, and, Mike, you know, we do have oil. Uh, did get close to 61, but hasn't been above 60 since January 7th now. So you're going back pre 
uh, onset of COVID to get oil numbers like this. And of course, everybody talks about the ridiculous range that crude has been in. If you talk, if you go into that negative period, yeah. it's about a hundred dollar range. It is wild, year. actually, and, and it's 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 really operated in a way you never thought it could uh, before. But I do think if you want to, you know, pull back a little bit on a longer time frame. In the last several years, crude has not spent much time at all above 60. It has been there. It's been hanging around there uh, at times, and it has gone higher uh, for brief periods of time. But it's not really been much higher. You know, I don't think we're talking about it really pinching uh, consumption. You know, it's, of course, a nominal dollar amount. The economy gets bigger all the time and all the rest of it. We're more uh, energy efficient in every way. But both with yields and with oil prices, you know, at least the conversation has started is, you know, if it's going up for the right reasons, we can all agree about that for the most part. When does it become a little bit more of a challenge for uh, for equities and and I guess for the economy? Yeah, but also a question has been, is energy investable? You know, Jim sure. Cramer's made the point many times that it's uninvestable. Not that you're not going to see significant moves higher, but over a longer period of time with the ESG mandates that are so prevalent now among so many asset allocators. Can they really um, allocate funds to to this sector. Now, it didn't stop Warren Buffett from buying $4 billion worth of Chevron. You can see that stock is up almost 2%. Exxon has benefited. We've talked about that lately. Mike, it's had a great move. Yeah. Uh, the question is, are we sort of towards the tail end of it? Now, you obviously, you mentioned the underlying commodity as well. There have been a number of other things in result with Exxon and why it's outperformed Chevron so, uh, so significantly over the last few months, or at least this year. Uh, but I guess that question is still out there in terms of the long term. It absolutely is. Uh, you also have to, again, you, you need the longer term uh, charts. It's had this incredible run back up into the 50s, Exxon. But, um, you know, crashing below 50 was a big deal when it got down there in the early part of last year. So uh, this was a stock that, uh, you know, I'm looking back uh, five years go. ago it was 95. Yeah. So we're, we're still kind of just bouncing off of these really extreme oversold levels where people just kind of abandon the whole uh, the whole sector. And so uh, we, we aren't talking about getting back to what we used to think of as normal levels. Carl. <clears throat> Um, meanwhile, David, uh, tomorrow we're at a GameStop hearing uh, in the House. Yeah. We have the, uh, the list of people who will give testimony. Uh, Griffin Huffman from Reddit, uh, Vlad Tenev from Robinhood, and Keith Gill, uh, who doesn't, isn't credited as being Roaring Kitty on the list of names, but in fact is Roaring Kitty. Okay. The guy up in, where was he, in Boston or somewhere in that <laughs> area, right? Yeah, in Massachusetts. Yes. Yeah. I'm looking yes. forward to seeing Roaring Kitty. Any word, though, on whether we're going to see... Um uh, Plotkin from Melvin or or that's not he's not coming. It's not he's not on the list. Um, I'll, I'll go back and look. Okay. I, I, I don't have it open at the moment, but but the names I gave you, they're going to be there. Yeah. And, I, and the market's going to be braced to see if we learn anything. I know uh, the questioning should be interesting. It's always interesting to see what level of knowledge our elected uh, representatives actually have about these markets. Sometimes I think we shudder with fear. Yeah, uh, with how little knowledge yeah. they actually have. But these hearings are designed to help educate them and help educate everybody. Uh, and, yeah, I'll be watching closely. Um, you know, on that note, of course, it, it, the levels of speculation in this market continue to some extent. I did want to come back to, um, to CCIV, the, uh, the symbol for Churchill Capital Five, of course, 
That stock, I mean, take a look. It's, you know, this is reflective. We talk about GameStop a lot, but take a look. Go back on, on CCIV a bit as well. You may recall, guys, I think it's a couple of months ago when I had the audacity to suggest, hey, sometimes, you know, you don't get to the finish line on a deal. This, of course, has been the speculation since Bloomberg first reported they were in talks to, uh, uh, to merge with Lucid, to Lucid merge into this fact, obviously, uh, go public. Since then, we've talked to uh, the largest shareholder, uh, Yasser Al-Ramayan, who runs the PIF of Saudi Arabia. We've talked to Rawlinson, the CEO of Lucid. One person we haven't talked to is Michael Klein, of course, the man who runs Churchill. And he hasn't returned any of my calls lately or texts. That's OK. Uh, yesterday, though, Reuters did report, and I'd heard this as well, that, well, essentially, People were being told, get ready to be wall crossed. Uh, what that means is it's those uh, investors who are considering the pipe, the uh, private investment in public equity that goes along so often with when these deals are announced. They should get ready to cross the wall, essentially, to start getting material, not public information, which they, obviously they can't share, or at least information that they can't share, although it always gets leaked almost right away. Uh, be very curious to see what this all looks like. Where do they really value Lucid? Uh, Reuters said maybe as low as 12, as low as maybe 12 billion dollars. Original reports in Bloomberg, I think it had 15. I just don't know. Uh, and then, Mike, these pipes, you come in at 10. Yeah. Uh, the SPAC's trading at 54. So Michael Klein is right now in a position to potentially deliver enormous p- paper profits to those investors who are willing to come in in the pipe. Now, again, percentages, we don't know what they're going to buy. We don't we don't know a lot here. Projections. But there's a lockup. After the deal is announced, after the deal closes, I should say, nonetheless, he's in a position to deliver a lot of potential money to these pipe investors, given this incredible move up in Churchill on the prospect of it eventually merging with Lucid. It, it is a really amazing, and it really shows you the, the kind of separate constituencies for, for SPACs right now, where, you know, it had always been this kind of, you know, this professional game. It was sort of an arbitrage. You were sort of protect, you know, there was a, there was a fairly structured trade in there uh, that people thought was, was very good risk-reward. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have the, the public kind of coming in and just getting excited about this concept of what they might buy, and it turns it a little bit upside down. So it is, uh, it is quite amazing. This market's in a hurry to just put big valuations and throw capital on whatever, uh, you know, kind of sexy notion comes across, uh, across the screen. Right. right and, I don't and, think that's changing. Yeah. And Carl, it's those SPACs that actually uh, announce deals with companies that are not profitable or don't have the prospect of it for a number of years that seem to actually get a lot more uh, money behind them. Uh, as opposed to those that already have a revenue stream and the potential for, if not profits, nearer term where you can actually apply a multiple that you might might sort of find uh, more appropriate. Yeah, I think a great exercise, Dave, would be to yeah. go through all of the, 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 the PowerPoints, the, the pitch decks upon a consummation of one of these SPAC deals of all the target companies and just aggregate the 2024 and 2025 revenue and the growth rates and everything. I mean, what's being promised three and four and five years out is amazing. Amazing. Because they can say whatever they want, and it all looks like a hockey stick. Yeah, I mean, last week, Mike, flying cars, Archer. I call it flying cars. It's not, but it's still fun to say. Uh, Off 2026 (laughs) numbers. That was the multiple they were using. 2026. Okay. Maybe it'll happen. Ken Mullis, of course, was buying that spec, came on and explained all the reasons why strategically it makes a lot of sense. And perhaps it really does. But to your point, you got a number of years here to sort of dream, uh, Carl. And there's a lot of dreaming going on. Yeah. 
What was the uh, the line from Peter Thiel? We wa- we were promised flying cars. Instead, we got uh, 240 characters. Yes, is that the line? That was. So one day we're going to yeah. get those darn flying cars, which is exciting. Phil mentioned it yeah. as well uh, to jog deep there. But it's you know it's going to be a while. Uh, guys, you know, one area that our producer Robert Hum points out not benefiting from a lot of the uh, optimism about uh, the economy reopening is travel. Uh, Hilton um, results came in uh, a 10 cent loss. We're looking for a 4 cent gain. Uh, Chris Nasetta said the results in the quarter largely in line, but tightening travel restrictions d- disrupted the positive momentum that we saw in the summer and the fall. And Mike, it kind of echoes what Expedia had said. Again, these are global travel trends that they're trying to game out. But um, that interruption in the fall and winter is sort of echoing now as the quarter gets printed. Without a doubt. And it's striking these companies who look at that chart. The stocks are back to where they were when we were, you know, unrestricted travel and where people, you know, weren't giving it a second thought. So really, the market has uh, has completely rushed to a place where it's assuming that we are pretty much on the track to the back to normal. I mean, I think a lot of the Expedia's like that. You know, I was looking at um, uh, at uh, at Norwegian Cruise Lines uh, yesterday. The enterprise value is back to where it was before because of all the stock and the debt they've issued, even though it looks like the stock's down a lot. So I think that's one of the issues here. Yeah, you have to focus on you know your, your progress along the way to the point. Uh, to getting back to normal when you've already had the market give them a lot of credit for for being pretty far along. Um, Guys, real quick to just not much in deal land this morning. A couple of things. Nestle did sell uh, parts of its water business. Uh, It's a private equity deal, but it's not insignificant. Four point three billion dollars. They didn't sell Perrier or San Pellegrino or Acapana, but they did sell Poland Spring. A lot of people know that name Uh, and a number of other significant brands. Zafrilis and uh, Ozarka. Um, as Mark Schneider continues to make changes there uh, at Nestle in terms of its overall portfolio. And finally, you know, uh, second request for the uh, Salesforce Slack deal. Remember, one of the larger deals of last year, an important one, of course, for Salesforce. Um, And we don't really have yet a sense for how the Justice Department is going to view technology deals under the Biden administration. Macon Del Rahim, obviously the man who'd run that part of the DOJ, uh, is no longer there. Uh, not sure at this point we know who's replacing, um, but Slack shares are down, as you see, uh, the spread opening up a bit. It may have the, uh, the effect of, of delaying, although you never know. They're, t- they're still sticking with the same sort of closing uh, on the calendar. But, Carl, it does sort of raise this question is how are technology deals going to be viewed in the larger context of this new administration and at least raising some concerns, perhaps, that at the very least, they're gonna, many of them are going to get second requests for more information. Yeah, yeah. Uh, getting a second look from regulators and, and rivals getting a little more spicy in their criticism of, uh, of some M&A as well, as we've talked a bit about on Squawk Alley. We'll take a break here, guys. Uh, take a look at the bond market. Obviously, uh, one of the major stories to watch in addition to equities. Uh, treasuries, Rick mentioned, on the rise, uh, with the analysts pointing out worries about inflation. Ten-year yield does touch its highest in nearly a year. We're going to get consumer sentiment due at the top of the hour. Over in Europe, uh, down across the board, and the dollar index as people keep an eye on the uh, prospect of inflation and higher rates near some five-month highs. Back in a moment. Dow Jones with a story crossing a moment ago that Saudi Arabia plans to boost oil output in the coming months. More confident over an oil price recovery. 
Speaking of energy, we're going to talk uh, the energy complex and utilities in a minute when we talk to Federal Energy Regulatory Commissioner Neil Chatterjee in just a moment. Don't go away. Millions in Texas face continued power outages for a third straight day, and now regulators are launching a joint investigation into 2021 cold weather grid operations. Joining us this morning to discuss Federal Energy Regulatory Commissioner Neil Chatterjee. Mr. Commissioner, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've made the point on Twitter the priority, obviously, is, is restoring power and helping those uh, who are affected. And, of course, our thoughts are going out to them and have been all week long. At this point, is, is there a working theory as to what the main culprit of this problem has been? Yeah, I just want to start by echoing that point that, you know, people are suffering. People have lost their lives. Uh, I really want to commend our frontline energy workers who, in the midst of a pandemic, are out there trying to restore power as quickly as possible. Safety remains paramount, and that's where our thoughts and concerns are. In terms of what caused this and, and, and what to do about it, it's, it's too early to tell. We need to do uh, a really careful, thoughtful analysis to identify what has gone wrong here. I think people are so quick to view things through partisan lenses, whether it be political or for their preferred fuel source, want to point fingers and say, well, this occurred because renewables didn't show up or this occurred because there was a failure uh, in gas delivery. It looks to be a combination of an extreme weather event coupled with a dramatic spike in demand for electricity that led to failures across fuel sources. And we just have to be very careful uh, and deliberate as we identify what went wrong to make sure we're not facing situations like this. We're at least better prepared in the future. Right. You're absolutely right about it uh, becoming a prism, a uh, political prism, a political football in many cases. But when you look at what contributes to generation, at least for the past uh, couple of weeks, let's just say, the percentage that comes from wind and solar looks negligible. How would you build a case that says that that element of energy was to blame? So, uh, again, uh, there were instances clearly where I think about half of expected capacity uh, of wind went down. But we saw that um, with, with gas, uh, with nuclear, and uh, with coal as well. We've just got to examine it. The generation mix in Texas has changed substantially over the last decade. Uh, I think uh, Texas's use of coal, for instance, is down dramatically uh, over the last decade. Would those retired coal plants have been able to step up and provide necessary supply in the situation? We need to examine that and see. Uh, but uh, I think it's clear that no one fuel source was to be blamed for this event. Certainly not renewables, not gas, not coal, not nuclear. This was an across-the-board uh, uh, crisis. Commissioner, Texas is somewhat unique, though, isn't it? It's not connected to the, to the grid. It's deregulated its, uh, its energy generation business overall. Does that have anything to do with what may be going on? Look, uh, uh, as they like to say down there, everything is bigger and better in Texas. Texas has unique attributes in that uh, it's big enough. It's got the people and the demand for electricity, and it's uh, the biggest energy producer in the country, and it's got the supply to meet that demand. Um, certainly, looking at energy infrastructure, uh, transmission, are all things that uh, uh, we need to examine, that this commission will, will play a key role in. Uh, but 
as with looking at fuel sources, um, examining the Texas grid. I know the governor has called for for an examination here. Those are things that uh, we need to do, but not jump to any conclusions at this early stage in the aftermath or still ongoing event. So what are you going to be looking most closely at or what should people who are going to try to come to conclusions look, look most closely at when we can actually uh, sufficiently look at what happened here to understand it? So at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, my colleagues and I, our foremost responsibility is reliability. It's looking at situations like this to ensure that when Americans hit the switch, the lights come on, the heat comes on. In the summer, the air come on, comes on. Reliability is boring. Uh, it's complicated. It's difficult to tweet about. But at the end of the day, it is our foremost responsibility. And I am confident that if we take the politics out of this and let the engineers and the economists and the experts examine what went on here, we will figure out ways to continue the energy transition that's taking place in Texas and around the country while maintaining the reliable, affordable grid uh, that really sets Texas and the United States of America apart from the rest of the world. Um, finally, I wonder, is, does part of the uh, investigation or the probe, do you expect it to look into whether or not there needs to be more cooperation with neighboring grids, either on the western or the eastern side in Texas? Again, that, that is a complex dynamic uh, that raises a lot of technical and jurisdictional questions. And so I don't want to get ahead uh, of my colleagues, uh, of Congress, uh, of the Texas legislature. It, that, that's a really loaded subject that uh, uh, calls for uh, a calm, deliberative examination. Commissioner, uh, you said it. Uh, reliability is boring until it isn't. Uh, and, and currently it's, it's not boring at all. Uh, we really appreciate your uh, guidance and we welcome you to come back. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Neil Chatterjee joining us this morning. By the way, we're going to talk more about this with Goldman's Jeff Curry uh, in the next hour, as obviously commodities are one of the huge stories of uh, the week and obviously the year so far. Dow's recovered some early losses, down seven points. Don't go away. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 